Today, we had an amazing conversation with Davide Valeriani. Davide is a senior machine learning scientist at Neurable, one of the largest BCI companies in the world. Here, Davide works with a team of scientists and engineers that are working on creating the next generation of human-machine interaction devices. Davide has his PhD from the University of Essex in brain-computer interfaces, where he focused on machine learning techniques to estimate the confidence of each decision a human makes. This was such an interesting episode, and I learned so much about how data is collected and cleaned, how signal processing works, the AI algorithms behind BCIs, and what ECOGs, EEGs, and EMGs are. I hope you learned as much from this episode as I did, and enjoy it. Okay, so David, thank you so much for being on the Techno Gypsy podcast. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really excited about being here. Yes, so are we. Um, okay, so we're going to jump right into it. So you have this one sentence on your LinkedIn bio, which Sierra and I, we liked it so much. Um, it said that you are focusing on developing brain-computer interfaces to improve decision-making and gather insights into mental states. So I want to dive a little bit deeper into that sentence. Um, but first, could you explain like what a BCI is to everybody listening who doesn't know? Yeah, sure. So BCI stands for Brain Computer Interface, and it's a it's a technology that uses brain activity that we can record through special sensors called electrodes uh, to gather insights and information from uh, what our brain is doing at a certain moment in time. So Brain Computer Interface is a technology that combines brains and computers. And what this means is that uh, is a technology that allows us to get to interact with a computer directly from our with our brain without moving any muscle, without you know, without moving our hand to control the computer with a mouse, for example, or typing on a keyboard. Um, is is a direct connection between our brain and uh, and the computer, or in general any device. And in fact, like sometimes a BCI is also called brain machine interface or BMI. Um, because it doesn't really matter much about what type of machine or computer you have on the other side. It's just about creating this direct connection between your brain yeah, yeah. and the, the other device. I think probably the biggest question that anybody has um, who's listening is, you know, how does that happen? You know, like how exactly do you get the signal that comes from your brain to then um, perform a task with, what it will, with whatever machine it is? Yeah, so um, the way it happens is that, um, well, let's start from the data recording, so, or the data collection. So it all about, it's all about data, right? So first we need to generate the data. We need to listen to the brain somehow to, to visualize and, and, and monitor that brain activity. So what we do is usually put in like small sensors um, that are electrical sensors on top of your head and because your brain is composed of, you know, billions of neurons and the basic activity of a neuron that is the, the brain cell that we, we are targeting here um, is to what we call it to fire. So whenever a neuron activates, whenever a neuron like does some activity, it, it fires. So it generates a very small electrical voltage, electrical activity um, in, in the brain. Uh, by putting the sensors on top of your head, uh, with special uh, electrical components like amplifiers there, we are able to capture those very small activities, especially when millions of neurons fire at the same time to generate like this kind of a large uh, uh, activity. 
So the first step for every BCI is being able to record this activity uh, with the sensors. Once we have the sensors coming in, uh, once we have the sensors in place and the data coming in, then we use uh, signal processing techniques that, that what they do are basically special algorithms that clean as much as possible the data that are coming in from these sensors. Because you can, you can imagine like, of, uh, like listening to a concert from outside the concert hall. So mm-hmm. you, you, you see, you, you hear like this fainted, like kind of noise or like music, but you really need to amplify what is music versus uh, uh, minimize like whatever is noise coming in from, you know, the, the city or the traffic or whatever. Same happens with BCIs because we place sensors from outside the head and outside the brain. We need to amplify the signal that we get in. And that's the role of signal mm-hmm. processing part. Once we clean the data, then we look for patterns, which means, uh, let's say uh, you do a certain task and certain areas of your brain uh, activates repetitively when you do that task and do not activate when you don't do that task. So that for us is a pattern. And then we can use machine learning algorithms to capture that pattern and transform that pattern into a command that we want to, um, to implement. For example, when you do that activity, let's say you imagine to move a certain uh, arm, let's say the, le- the left arm, um, we can capture that pattern and translate that into moving uh, a prosthetic arm. And that's where the let's say magic happens here, where we can use a BCI to control another device, in this case, a prosthetic arm, without moving any muscle from us, just imagining to move that muscle. That's very interesting. Um, that definitely, I think it sounds like there's a lot of, not only just brain computer interfaces, but I feel, it sounds like there's a lot of machine learning and artificial intelligence that comes into play with that, especially with like signal processing, with cleaning the data and like getting the data so that you can put the pattern into a command. So I'm curious, how much data do you actually need for this? Because I know that turning the pattern into com- to, into a command, it takes more than just like, you know, one person to do it, that you know, that's the actual right command for the pattern. So how much data do you think you would need to consume before you can actually make this into an actual command? Yeah, totally. You need a lot of data. That's a, that's a great question. Uh, it's like, you know, it's the um, never ending question that we have in BCI. How much data do we need? Like we, we start, usually we start with a very limited amount of data, let's say in the matter of minutes of recordings. So you record a certain uh, uh, person or a certain user doing the task you want to capture for several times uh, for maybe 10 minutes. And then you look into the strongest pattern that uh, that particular task uh, creates. What we tend to use uh, is that um, is let's say a, 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 we do group studies, which mean like we, we ask the multiple people to do the same task repetitively. And then we are able to identify what pattern uh, is present um, across all the people that we are, uh, uh, we are collecting data from. And that helps us like understand like how strong that pattern is across different people. So obviously this generates a lot of data because yeah. we are, uh, with brain data, we are talking about, let's say, having from each sensors five, between 500 and 1,000 uh, samples or recordings every second. So every second, we generate 1,000 numbers from one sensor. 
And if you multiply that by 10 minutes, it, the, the amount of data that you are generating from one single person is already quite big. Yeah. And then you increase it by number of people. That's We are talking about uh, you know gigabytes of data for uh, training a machine learning model to decode these, uh, uh, these um, uh, thoughts. Uh, at the same time, we have to think about the uh, BCIs being more and more available over time. So if we are able to access and to, to, to use on our daily basis these devices, then we can easily generate extra data that then can be used to you know, refine our algorithms and make them better. Um, you did mention in the previous response to the question about signal process processing and clearing up, cleaning up the data. And I'm sure that there's a lot of other AI algorithms that are kind of involved with that. And um, what kind of models are you using? I know there's like classification and clustering models. Would you say you're using more classification models to detect the patterns? Yes. So we um, use mostly uh, a number of classification algorithms each so each artificial intelligence or machine learning, in this case, um, algorithm is used for a specific uh, task or a specific or, or to solve a specific problem. Uh, usually when we want to translate brain activity into commands, and so we want to capture patterns, we use supervised machine learning. So supervised classification uh, algorithms, because we want to translate you know, a, a large data set into a number, a finite number of uh, classes. Let's say uh, move the right arm versus move the left arm versus don't move anything. Um, whereas, um, so this is one, one um, area. We also tend to use uh, regression um, for, uh, uh, for type of uh, machine learning that, uh, that are typical in brain computer interfaces. And that is mostly useful when you want to decode a number that is like continuous, that you know it varies between zero and one. Let's say your focus level. So how much, how how focused you are throughout the day? Okay, that could vary between zero and one hundred percent. Let's say, but um, you can certainly like impose threshold and say whatever is below fifty percent means not focused, and whatever is above fifty percent is focused. So you can transform any regression problem into a classification problem or a binary classification problem. But often like in BCIs, you want to maintain this freedom of, you know, like a continuous variable between zero and 100. Uh, the, the last part that you are saying about the clustering algorithms are usually used more to uh, explore new features. So explore new patterns or new transformations of the data that may uh, help you identify these patterns, or can be used to divide your group of people that you are uh, um, you are collecting data from into subgroups that are maybe uh, uh, that have maybe shared characteristics. Uh, let's say maybe you you collect data from a hundred people and then you run cluster uh, clustering algorithms and you identify that thirty out of those people have a certain pattern, whereas other seventy have a certain different pattern. And uh, once you get that information, then maybe you want to develop classification algorithms that are different from these two groups of people to improve your performance. That is so interesting. I love the whole, um, like getting the data and it's like, it's so complicated in between, right? Like it's, there's so many steps, which is so interesting. 
And one thing that I know probably I've heard and other people have heard is like EEGs and and ECOGs. What is exactly the difference between each of them? Like how do they differ and what do they both mean and stand for? Yeah, so so EEG stands for electroencephalography. And uh, the key there is that you're capturing electrical activity and that, so in both cases, EEG and ECOG or ECOG um, are capturing electrical activity. The main difference that they have is how invasive they are or where you place the sensors. So in EEG, you place the sensors outside of the head. So you put the sensors on top of the head and you start recording straight away. With ECOG instead, like uh, you are implanting the sensor between the, um, uh, the, let's say the skin that you have on your head and the first layer uh, before the before the brain inside. Oh, it's like head. it's surgically implanted. So then. it needs a surgery, um, and you know at the, at at the an even lower level you would have um, let's say um, needles or LFP or local field potential where you actually are inserting a needle down into the brain to record the data. So ECOG sometimes is considered to be semi-invasive, so not completely invasive because it's much easier to insert as a, as a technology to record brain activity than it is like inserting a needle all the way down. And you were, t- you, I know that the difference between the both is like one's a cap, so it's not necessarily um, as close to the brain as the ECOG one. Does that mean that the ECOG one is kind of produces better results or are they kind of the same in results? No, it's correct. Like uh, the, the ECOG signals are way cleaner, much better than EEG. The, uh, you know, the, the issue with ECOG uh, is number one is the cost because requiring surgeries to implant those electrodes means that, you know, for implanting one sensor, it's going to cost like thousands of dollars um, for, for a person. Uh, number two is the coverage that you get from, uh, from the uh, brain. So to date, um, I'm not aware of any, any particular data set that has full brain coverage with ECOG. Usually ECOG um, is, a, is a grid uh, of sensors. So it's like, a, imagine a square, a small square that you implant on a specific area of the brain where you want to record data from. But uh, the more sensors you want to include, the more expensive the whole uh, surgery is going to be and the more risky it's also going to be. So every you know, every surgery has a chance of, I think, a 2% of things going badly. Um, And so every time you do a surgery, you have that risk to to account for. Whereas with EEG, you don't have that risk at all. You're just placing the sensor. So since there's a a bunch of, you know, cons to using ECOGs or ECOGs, um, would that EEGs are used more than like, would you say that they're, yeah, used more in different companies and stuff like that? They're more popular? Um, yeah, I, I think that all these technologies have a certain segment of the market, let's say, a certain um, group of people that would, that would be the best technology for. So let's say um, if you want to, um, you know, um, predict whether you're going to have a seizure because you are a person with epilepsy or not, it's probably worth it 
worth it to implant electrodes to achieve the maximum accuracy there uh, of your uh, predictor of your algorithm. Uh, it's probably worth it to uh, to you know um, afford the cost of implanting those and the risk of surgeries. Uh, number one, because you are once the electrodes are implanted, nobody's going to take them out from you. So you need to do this once. And if you have epilepsy, you probably want to have this algorithm running all the time. It's not something you want to switch off. Yeah, you so want to be able to have the data. Yes. So for certain patients' population, uh, invasive technologies are actually, uh, you know, life-changing. Um, and, and, and I don't see uh, in the short term EEG being able to compete with these invasive technologies uh, in, uh, from, from the accuracy point of view. But on the other side, like if you want to, let's say, um, uh, control your slides uh, with your thoughts, okay, uh, which is something that brain computer interfaces can do. Um, maybe you don't want to go through the risk of having surgery and, and implanting electrodes just for the sake of moving a slide or advancing a slide. But if you have a technology that is safe, like EEG, that is inexpensive, and that works maybe 80 or 90% of the times rather than 99% of the time is already a great advancement for you. So there are really like different uh, applications and uh, you know market segments for uh, for the two technologies. I'd say EEG right now is the most popular because it's inexpensive and because it's uh, readily available and safe. And so in BCIs, I would say maybe between 50 and 60% of the studies in BCIs are using this technology. Yeah, I can definitely see why. I would definitely see like ECOGs um, used more in the medical space. You would like for more right. serious things and yeah, um, EEGs for more um, less, less serious things, of course. Um, and you were mentioning something about thoughts and like based on like you can move something based on your thoughts. So how, how does this process how does this process work with converting your thoughts into something a computer can understand and make that into a command? Like how does that whole process work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it goes to, towards like what I was uh, uh, describing at the beginning. So it's all about like recognizing patterns. So for example, um, let's say that you want that to advance a slide, uh, you want to produce a certain, a certain thought, a certain mental, you, you want to put your brain into a certain mental state, okay? Um, and what this means is that uh, you need to, number one, identify what is a thought that generates a very different uh, brain activity from a thought that you would do uh, in another scenario. Um, so as I was mentioning before, uh, you may have, you may collect data uh, continuously from a person that is doing a normal workday activity. Uh, and then at some point that person starts imagining to move uh, the, the right arm, like doing circular movements with the right arm continuously, just imagining, but not doing it. So this activates a specific area of the brain. Uh, and so it, whenever you recognize a, an increased activation in that area of the brain through the sensors, then you can you know, raise a flag and say, oh, this person wants to issue a command to let's say change the slide. So in that case, you are identifying a specific pattern from a specific area of the brain. Uh, to transform data into recognizable uh, commands for the computer, you need to 
you know, built um, sequences of algorithms and signal processing algorithms and the representation of data and machine learning algorithms as well that are able to take the unorganized uh, data that comes in, structure it. Let's say right now you have sensors all around the head, but maybe now we want to focus only on this particular sensor. Okay, on the data that comes from that particular sensor. Then we, we take the data from there. And then usually in BCIs, you window the data, which means that instead of taking like data and accumulating them, uh, you accumulate, let's say, one second of data, and then you transform that one second of data from that sensor into one number. So you have, uh, let's say, if you are sampling at 500 hertz that I was saying before, you have 500 numbers for that one second of data in right. one single sensor, and you transform those 500 uh, numbers into one number that is, let's say, zero if the person doesn't want to move the slide or one if it if he wants to move the slide. So it's very binary then, like off or on. So it's we, we all start from binary problems because binary problems are already very difficult to achieve in BCI. But then we, uh, we can also make that um, like with multiple uh, decisions at the same time. So multi-class problem, which means maybe you can have those data sets transforming into zero for saying no action, one meaning next slide, two meaning previous slide. Right, yeah. So if you were to wrap this up again, because there's a couple loose ends that we've touched on. So if you were to like wrap this up in like, like one minute, give like a brief from the making data to then classifying it to then like either EEGs or ECOG, how would you describe that whole process? Like very quickly, just to sum it up. Um, so, okay. So first it starts from recording data. And from there you can record, you can decide if you want to use invasive technologies like ECOG or non-invasive technologies like EEG and place sensors outside of the head. Once you have data coming in, you are basically, you basically have like a, a stream of data that every second produces, let's say, 500 samples uh, of data. And then you use signal processing to clean that data. You use uh, machine learning to identify patterns in that data set and transform that data and that pattern into a command. That is, let's say, zero for no action, one for move to the next slide, and two for move to the previous slide. Yeah, that totally cleared it up. Thank you. That was a very nice to tie everything together. Yeah. So where um, you work at Neurable. So can you tell us a bit about your work and what you do in the BCI space? Yeah, sure. So what we do at Neurable is um, building uh, the everyday brain computer interface. So how can we uh, reach uh, everybody out there that wants to use a brain computer interface with uh, some technology that is, again, inexpensive, so affordable and uh, um, available for everyone. And it helps us like better understand uh, what we do throughout the day and improves our way to interact with technology. So all of this means that um, at Neurable, we really are um, building the, let's say the, the Fitbit of the brain. Okay? <laughs> um, in a way, this means that 
the neurable product is a, is a pair of headphones and we put uh, special sensors, the EEG sensors integrated in the headphones so that in addition to listening to music, uh, your headphone is able to capture your brain activity and transform that into uh, a focus level. So, and tell you like how, how focused you are throughout the day. Um, this is helpful to understand, for example, if you want, if you need to take a break because uh, you have, um, you, you may burn out if you keep working so focused, or it may suggest you which time of the day you are usually most focused and, uh, uh, and which times of the day instead are not worth to try to keep focused. Um, in addition to that, because it's an everyday BCI with the same headset, with the same sensors, same device, you can also control uh, your computer, your smartphone oh, wow. or whatever other device with your thoughts or with facial gestures. So because we place sensors around the ear, we are actually able to capture also uh, small movements in the, in, in the face and transform that with the same approach into commands. So just to clarify there, as I was saying before, each neuron in the brain generates a very small electrical activity that we capture with EG sensors. Mm. Muscle, muscles um, generate a, an even bigger electrical activity. So we can also transform activity from a muscle into a command in a much easier way than with EEG. And that's what we what we do at Neurable, combining EEG, but also muscular activity to allow you to, you know, issue as many commands as you want, basically, uh, to, to a device. That's so interesting. I didn't know that you could also track, like, the muscle movements. I did not know that, and that's very interesting. Yeah, this, feel... this is called EMG, or electromyography, uh, but is, uh, is a, let's say, a similar approach in terms of signal processing machine learning. Could you use it on any body part then, or is it only like facial kind of muscles? Uh, you can use it with any muscle. Uh, it, it depends. Uh, so because we are uh, really interested more into the, the brain and we are confined to sensors around, the, around here, we only capture muscles from the, from the face. But there has been work, for example, on putting, uh, you know, on, on amputees, um, you can put sensors on the part that has been uh, removed and capture the activity um, from, uh, from that place and use that activity to control, let's say, a prosthesis. So if you, if you have a wearing a prosthesis, then it's much easier to gather and to capture as an activity than capturing it from the brain. Yeah. Oh, I love that so much because like the yeah. applications are so amazing, right? And their scope is so big that it's, it's just, it's so exciting. I feel like a lot of people, they also get like scared when they're, you know, hearing about this, you know, tracking brain activities, you know, and like all these different, you know, kind of like, I feel like people think that it's going to control your thoughts or something like that. So let's move into some of the myths about BCI. So what would you say is like a big myth if we're going to like break some big myths to help people to better understand what BCIs really are? So number one myth I would say is, oh, a brain computer interface is reading my thoughts. That's not true. So that's not what we do. Again, what we do is uh, looking for patterns, looking for uh, parts of the brain that activates uh, consistently and significantly when you do a certain task. 
Um, so if you are if you are now thinking, oh, this conversation is so boring, I'm not able to uh, capture that. So you are safe. Um, the same happens with you know a more uh, sensitive information. Um, let's say if you, if I want to capture you thinking about your password or you thinking about uh, whatever other uh, sensitive thing you can have, uh, we're not able to do that. And I don't think we're going to be able to do that for the next 50 years or, or so. It's a very, very slow process. BCIs have been you know, invented in the 70s, so uh, more than 50 years ago. And still we are at this stage in which we, you can't go to a supermarket and buy a BCI uh, and do multiple things. So uh, this takes a while to develop and there is a lot that we don't know about the brain, about the human brain. So uh, I, I want just to you know, clarify that we are not reading thoughts. We, and second part is, the, especially when using uh, non-invasive technologies, the user has always the chance or the, the, the power of turning the uh, device off. So we are not forcing anyone to share uh, their brain activity. We are not controlling anyone's uh, brain. We are not changing agency uh, with these um, devices. Uh, and you know, we, when, when we talk about the EG, we are talking about reading the brain. Okay, so it's not writing, it's reading. So whatever you are doing, we are able to, you know, measure the activity that that creates and find a way to transform that into something meaningful. But at the end of the day, we want to give you an extra tool to better understand yourself. Um, what usually is considered to be, you know, writing the brain is the brain stimulation device like uh, transcranial direct current stimulation, for example, TDCS. But this is another like domain for BCIs. And those are more, uh, I would say, invasive regardless of the, of the type of uh, technology you use. Right. Uh, and the key idea is always like you being in charge of deciding if you want to switch on or off the device. So is it like Neurable or whatever the company is? It's like they're the ones who then get that information in like real time? So what, what we do at Neurable is uh, building the hardware um, for um, uh, recording the brain activity and building the software that translates that brain activity into insights, into focus core, into commands. And, that, and then we give that to the user and then the user decides how he or she wants to use it. In addition to that, to make our algorithm better, we will also ask the user if they want to share their data with us. If they don't want, that's totally fine. They can keep working with our devices. There's no problem there. But if they want to also share the data, uh, we'll be able to use in an anonymized and safe way their data to make the algorithms better and gather even more insights into what they do. Okay. And... As far as advancements with um, Neurable, would you say that you you guys are focusing more on improving the accessibility of your products or making um, improvements to the product itself? Um, so right now we are mostly focused on um, reaching the market. So finalizing the development of our product and launching it uh, to the market and make it available to the customer. 
Uh, obviously, like our product is going to get better and better over time. Even after reaching the market, we are going to release um, periodic updates, both software and hardware, about what you can do with that product. We are also uh, partnering with other uh, companies that want to use our product for gathering insights into their particular business. Uh, so, for example, uh, you may think of you know, a, a company that wants to uh, help their employees um, understand better when they are tired and when they should take a vacation or when they should take a break. Or you may think about like uh, um, uh, people with some uh, disabilities that need the device to communicate with the world or to issue simple commands or to call a caretaker in a, in a certain moment. So it's really like for, for Neurable providing a tool or a framework that could then be used for a number of different applications in many domains. And what exactly do you do as, at Neurable as a, a machine learning scientist? Yeah, so my work is really split into two parts. So one part is more science-based, uh, which is um, is mostly validating hypotheses, And that means that Let's say we want to capture, uh, we want to offer a new feature for our headset. So we would gather data, preliminary data, and, and look and do some exploratory data analysis uh, where we have an hypothesis, we look at the data, and we see if the hypothesis is validated with the data. For example, my hypothesis is if you really want ice cream, uh, this area of the brain becomes more active than other areas. Um, so you, you then what we do is like we call people from outside that come to our uh, lab. We record data while they uh, want ice cream and we record data when they don't want ice cream. And then we uh, analyze the data sets and look into this pattern. So it's more about pattern discovery and validation. That's the science part. Uh, the other half of my job is more about the engineering part. So building infrastructure and machine learning algorithms that are able to transform the data sets that we get into uh, inside of the brain. And in particular, I'm, um, I'm more focused on the analytics side. So assessing how focused you are uh, throughout the day. Whereas other, so my, my colleagues are also working on uh, interactions. So transforming your brain activity into commands for other devices. Okay, that does really, that sounds like a very interesting job. And it seems like you have a, a little bit of a, a variety of things. So you're not just like stuck on, you know, just like one thing that you're working on, you can kind of work between two, which definitely sounds awesome. So I do have a question about people who are interested, like say like high schoolers or, you know, um, young people, I guess, who are interested in going into the field. What skills are you looking for as, as far as um, hard skills and technical skills and soft skills? Like what, what do you think is best for this um, field and area? Yeah, so, um, well, let's start from the soft skills. So teamwork. Um, in br so brain-computer interfaces is a, is a field that is ultra super interdisciplinary. Uh, you need to know a lot. You need to know engineering. You need to know neuroscience. You need to know statistics, psychology, uh, electrical engineering. Um, a lot of different fields come together to build these devices. So there is no way that 
this knowledge is condensed in one single person. That's why teamwork is, is key uh, in, any, in any company that works on BCIs. So that's definitely a soft skill that we require and we, we look for, um, being able to work as a team member. Uh, in terms of technical skills, as I was mentioning, um, it's heavily engineering and computer science. There is a lot of uh, software development involved. There is a lot of signal processing, so electrical engineering involved with BCIs. There is also obviously like neuroscience or uh, like psychology. Yeah, to understand what we have to deal with, which is the human brain, uh, how to you know manipulate that or how to uh, you know design an experiment that tests a certain hypothesis uh, and so on. Uh, then there are like these are the primary ones I would say: electrical engineering, um, computer science, and uh, neuroscience. Uh, then the secondary ones I think are also like uh, let's say mathematics or uh, statistics to help us validate uh, hypotheses, but also like you know uh, um, interface design or graphical design, uh, the way that we have to convey this message to the user. We are really building like a new field somehow or a new area. So we rely on, you know, experience from other fields, but at the same time, we're also building something from scratch. So what is the easiest way that we have to communicate to a user, your, your brain tells me that you are disfocused. Is it a color? Is it a specific, you know, user interface or is a, is a number? So we, we need really like, expertise from all around the technology here. Plus, uh, as we talked about before, like ethicists, like neuroethics, like uh, we, we need to solve this uh, uh, skepticism that there is about BCIs. And by tackling these problems at an earlier stage, I think it would simplify uh, the way uh, we have to bring BCIs to the consumer market in a safe and uh, uh, reliable way. Totally, yeah. So what are you most excited about, about BCIs and the field? Oh, everything. I mean, I'm, I'm all into BCI. Uh, <laughs> so um, I, uh, I'm mostly interested into, you know, making uh, or changing the lives of people uh, in, uh, in, in a good way. So really providing technologies that help people, uh, help people in needs, but also help people understand better about themselves. Uh, and I think BCI is uh, what excites me the most is how uh, many different applications you could have with, with the same system, with the same BCI. So again, like just by, you know, developing like these headphones that we do at Neurable with 16 sensors, we have already like uh, uh, tens of different companies that work in, in all possible different fields that want to work with us uh, with this technology. And that being from, you know, from, uh, doctors that want to monitor a patient at home for a long period of time to, you know, um, companies that want to change your environment to improve your focus, for example. Yeah. So there is like a re really different number of applications. I work, for example, in the, in the area of decision making. So how can we understand from your brain activity when you are confident about your decision? And because you are, when you are confident, you're always more likely to make a correct decision. Uh, mm -hmm. I showed that this like really helped groups uh, be better in making, in making critical decisions. So again, all of this could be done with the same device, 
just by placing sensors, the right sensors in the right place uh, on top of your head. That is so crazy. Yes. This has been um, totally awesome. I just love the fact that BCIs are so, um, they, they have so many possibilities. There's, they have so many use cases. And there's a, a variety of people who can come into the field and they can have a purpose in the field. It's not just, you know, one specific type of expertise. You kind of like, you need a, a bunch of people um, to collaborate and work on this. And I, I just love that kind of environment, like having that teamwork and having all the different kinds of people um, around you. It's definitely um, something that I'm very interested in. I'm sure uh, plenty of other people are interested in the field and the technology itself because it's so, um, so many possibilities as I mentioned before. So I wanna thank you so much for coming on the Techno Gypsy podcast. And I hope everybody listening has learned a lot. Thank you, thank you so much. This was great. And I really enjoyed sharing my thoughts with you. And I hope I, I conveyed like the excitement with BCIs to, to other people because we really need a lot of people in BCI field to make them re- really available in a, in a fast way. Yeah. So thank you guys. Mm-hmm.